Good evening and welcome to Chloe Across America. I'm so excited to be here with you this evening. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Tonight's panel discussion is intersectionality. And I know it's a word that we've heard so often, but we're gonna really break it down as best as we can so that you can take this information and incorporate it into your lives and educate other people. That's my number one goal when it comes to the show. And I'm so excited because this is only episode three, but I've seen so much transformation as a result of this little show that I do in my home in Brooklyn. Shout out Brooklyn, bing, bing, bing. Um, one of those things really made my day. I woke up this morning and I was just hit with the barrage of like negativity, bad news, that Russell Simmons documentary, which we will be talking about this evening. And I got this little ray of sunshine in my DM, a viewer who tuned into last night's discussion of art as a form of protest wrote me. They said, hi, Chloe. I feel like one of those uh, those Christian evangelicals. I got a letter today from a viewer who said that I changed their life. No, they didn't say that. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but this is a letter from a viewer. Uh, hi, Chloe. I watched your show last night and I work for a big company and they wanted to commission art on all of the plywood windows that are up to protect the store. And I told them no because it didn't feel authentic being from a large corporation. And I wanted to say that your episode was so affirming of that no, and the artists who spoke were so inspiring. I took copious notes and I'm excited to follow their work. Thank you for all that you're doing. I continue to listen and learn. Thank you so much. I really like, I'm getting a little verklempt because I think a lot of times when we work um, and we do things, especially with social media, there's so many other things that you can be watching right now. So thank you. Shout out to Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. I see all of you here. Shout out to the clones uh, for tuning in. And sometimes you feel like you're kind of in a vacuum. You kind of feel like you are the only one. And it really, really brightened my day to receive that letter for someone. So that was my good news. And I wanted to start and share that with you that, uh, hopefully we can help make the world a better place. So if you didn't watch last night's episode, which was art as a form of protest, you can tune in and watch it as well as our first debut episode, which was about defunding the police. That is on my Facebook page and my YouTube channel. So now let's get into the show, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into it. Let's get into these headlines. All right. Yes. I, uh, I was really wondering why today I needed to check my bank account. Because like many of us out here, I'm on unemployment and I wanted to make sure that my money hit. It did. But I also realized when I looked at my account that I have 52 days left of unemployment benefits. Okay, 52 days. And you know that extra $600 that a lot of us are getting, that ends next month. Yes. Isn't that atrocious? And the problem with the $600 is that there is a plan put in place by the Democratic House to extend those benefits to January 2021. However, there's some pushback because someone did a study and they realized that if Americans continue to receive that extra $600, five out of six Americans would make more money and that supplemental income than they would at their regular job. 
And that is something that Republicans are pushing back on because they feel that people just want to be welfare kings and queens. You remember that? I'm an 80s baby. You remember? Remember that whole slanderous campaign against welfare queens? So they feel like if we give people money, they're not going to work. But what really the conversation should be, if you give people money, they can pay for their life. They can pay their rent. They won't be evicted. They can handle those student loan debts. Then they can take the, the, the pressure off of their back so that they can go and get a job without being stressed to keep a shitty job. Did I tell you that I curse from time to time on the show? I do just a little bit because I'm a grown ass woman and I could do what I want in my house. But back to the $600. Um, it is imperative that we make sure our voices are heard when it comes to a quality of life. And we're going to continue to fight for equality. A part of that equality is financial and economic equality as well. So yes, $600 seems like a little kiki, but you also realize that other governments are giving their citizens $2,000 a month. No questions asked. So I want my $600. Okay. I want my $600. Don't cut it off. Extend it. Thank you very much. All right. Someone else who pissed me off today. I looked on Twitter and I saw the Vogue challenge was trending. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Let me go back. I'm sorry. The racism roundup. Yes. The racism roundup. So this is what I'm calling this segment. I got so excited about uh, going at Anna Wintour's neck. Let me, let me do my proper setup. Hold on. Let me adjust my microphone. Can everybody hear me good? Am I sounding good? Is my, is my microphone popping? Okay, good because I didn't have it on last night, if you didn't realize that. Um, There's so many stories that we see, and we're so desensitized when it comes to racism that I don't want to bog us down with every single knick-knack racism story. So therefore, I'm introducing my first official segment of the show. It's called The Racism Roundup. Story number one, Racism Roundup. Trending on Twitter today was the Vogue challenge. And I got excited. I was like, oh my God, is In Vogue coming back? Did they find Sydney and they brought back Maxine? Like, is it going to be the original four? No shade to the third one, but the real four is like the weirdest at. Like, I'm not really buying no In Vogue with the three girls. Like, this is not DC3. You know what I'm saying? But no, alas, it was not that Vogue. The Vogue challenge started as a little middle finger up to Miss Anna Wintour, who decided that it's now her responsibility to take full responsibility for Vogue's hurtful and intolerant behavior. And by hurtful and tolerant behavior, she really means racism. Yes. Why is Vogue Lily White? Anna Wintour. Why are there not many women of color or men of color or non-gender people of color in the upper echelons of the editorial masthead? Anna Wintour. Why is Andre Leon Talley not at Vogue magazine? Anna Wintour. So Anna, it is your fault. Don't say it like, is this customary? Oh my gosh, it's the machine. It's the man above me. I don't know who's responsible. Anna, it's your fault. You've been here for 32 years, sis. 32 years on the job. Yes, you need to take all the responsibility. And you need to step aside and let people who have a clearer vision, who are truly inclusive, take the reins. Don't worry, I'm sure you'll still have enough money to get your bob tighten every week. Next story. You know who else is mad today? People who love NASCAR. Yes, because NASCAR just announced that they will be banning the Confederate flag from all future races. 
Now, not only does that mean no Confederate flags on the cars, that means if you pay a ticket to go to NASCAR, you cannot bring in your flag. Now, I just want to know who is bringing Confederate flags to, to race? I, I'm, there are barely any black people. There might be 0. 0.002 black people who attend NASCAR and half of them are drivers. Okay. So why would you take, a Confederate flag, a flag of a team that lost. See, this is the thing that always bothers me about people who want to hold a Confederate flag talking about the history. Your team lost. Your history is a history of losers. Losers. Here come the Brooklyn accent. Uh, losers. A bunch of losers. Why you need to have that Confederate flag at a NASCAR race? NASCAR is about speed, agility, and winning. Okay? And the people who love Confederate flags most times are not agile and they aren't fast and they definitely ain't winning at life. Okay. So I'm glad NASCAR. Thank you. I, I may watch a half a second of a show. I just watched turbo with my little cousin. It's about a snail who wanted to be a NASCAR driver. I felt like that's all a NASCAR I needed in my life. It was a good movie. Check it out. Turbo It's old as shit, but you know, whatever. Next story in the racism roundup. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Everybody uses this quote, but you know what it refers to. It refers to gone with the wind, which now has been pulled from HBO Max. You know, this gone with the wind. Shout out to Hattie McDaniel, the first African-American woman to win an Academy Award. It was for playing a domestic, but she broke down a barrier and it was not duplicated until decades later with Halle Berry. We'll save racism in Hollywood for a whole nother conversation. But HBO Max just launched its streaming platform and they have a whole bunch of archives of films and television shows and Gone with the Wind was one of them. Thankfully, enough backlash shamed them to take the cinematic masterpiece. I say that in quotes, cinematic center center cinematic masterpiece off of its streaming platform, because it is just a glorification of antebellum South and racism. If you don't know what going with the wind is, it's basically about that white woman, Scarlett O'Hara, who's mad that she can't keep her slaves. And she's trying to find a rich man to marry her. And the union soldiers come and take over her Southern mansion. And she's pissed. That's it. She's a loser. So we don't need to see her either. Uh, thank you, HBO Max. And I feel like you owe us one because HBO was also the network that was going to greenlight a show created by the same people who came up with Game of Thrones about America where the Confederacy won and African-Americans were still enslaved in modern times. And Black Twitter said, not on my watch. And they decided to Ixnay the show. So therefore, as a testament to you trying to get back on our good side, you knew damn good and well that nobody wanted to see Gone with the Wind. Thank you. The only Gone with the Wind I tolerate is Kendra saying Gone with the Wind fabulous and even she's on thin ice. All right. Now let's get a little, whew, how to calm myself down. Let me drink a little bit of water. I need to clear my uh, my palate for this next story. Russell Simmons. Russell Simmons. HBO Max again came through with the one-two gut punch as they debuted the controversial Russell Simmons documentary, 
on the record. It was trending last night. If you saw this on the record, it was referring to the Russell Simmons documentary. And this documentary is the same one that Oprah Winfrey passed on. But HBO Max picked it up because they are HBO Max. And they decided to air the show, which is a good thing. I don't want to say that it's bad that they air, are airing the documentary because it is a conversation that needs to be had. But one of the things about this documentary is that coming from the hip hop community as a former journalist who's worked at hip hop publications and knowing the climate in the music industry, I'm concerned that this documentary may not be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And to further support that theory, just this morning, Russell Simmons was invited to the breakfast club as he sat in his namaste pose all the way from Bali. There he is. There he is. Don't not look. Come on. Just get, let's just get into the body language real quick. Let, let me just, let me just make him. Can we just get into the body language? See, see listen, I'm not an expert, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you when someone's guilty, when someone's guilty, they need to find a calming environment to help minimize the sinisterness that exudes from their aura. All right. Do you notice the, the body language, which is I'm, I'm passive. I'm not a threat. This is all branding. This is the man who created Run DMC and, and, and Def Jam. He knows how to polish. He knows how to A&R. He knows his prayer beads is going to make us look at him and be like, he ain't snatching bitches up. Don't fall for it. I will scale back my uh, lack of objectivity. And I would like to bring on the show a dear friend of mine. Uh, this woman is the author of God Save the Queens, a hip-hop encyclopedia of women in hip-hop. Sorry, the essential history of women in hip-hop. Uh, she is a hip-hop historian. She is an advocate for women. And she's a dear friend of mine. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Kathy Andale. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm 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 here. Um, right. <laughs> I'm glad that you are here with me so we can kind of break this down. Now I'm going to be very clear. I did not watch the documentary. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I do have a little funny, not funny as in sad anecdote when it comes to Russell Simmons. Many years ago, I was asked to be a part of a big cable network documentary about black comedians and Russell Simmons created deaf comedy jam, which was the offshoot of his record label, but it was a comedy show. It was on HBO for many, many years. And I remember watching it every year as a little girl. And when I got into comedy, it was something that I referenced. And so I'm sitting in the chair, I'm being interviewed. And the person asked me, um, we talked to Russell Simmons and he said that women in comedy deal with a lot of misogyny and they get targeted and preyed upon when they're on the road. And that's something that they have to be mindful of It's is going into situations where someone wants to take advantage of them. And I had to look at them and be like, who, who said, who said that? Was that, was that Russell Simmons? Who's that? And this is also around the time when Bill Cosby was percolating. It wasn't full blown. It wasn't a full blown story yet. But if you were moving in certain circles, especially in comedy, conversation was like Bill Cosby's about to be exposed, right? And so when they asked me that question, it felt so it, it offended my sensibilities because it's like, do you know who's saying this? And so my response straight to camera was, these niggas is trash. Um, needless to say, the the documentary never came out. 
I wonder why. Yeah. Um, but um, but Kathy, can you please please enlighten us and speak to what's happening right now? Well, I think first and foremost, um, I'm so shocked that this documentary did not have the legs that it was supposed to have, right? I think that um, as fast as we learned about it, it just seemed to have vanished, right? And I watched it, I did watch it. And I absolutely 1000% believe every woman in the documentary. Um, I think that what we saw today you know, the Lotus pose with, um, you know, what was behind him. There was like that tapestry, this, like the prayer beads, mm -hmm. all of it was kind of this, just his own, I guess, visual representation of his innocence in a sense. Right. But I think the thing is the language. I don't believe, I didn't think I did it. I don't believe I did it. When you put that into your mind, you can take 3,000 lie detector tests and you'll always be in that position. You're a yogi. Of course you can remain calm with a lie detector test. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? That ability to stay calm is proving to be his, I guess, greatest um, asset in this, in this fight, right? But, you know, it's troubling because it brings up this greater question of why hip hop protects Mm -hmm. men, right? You know, um, I know you can attest to this. I can attest to this. When when we started, like decades ago now, right? It was par for the course, right? Get get your um get your butt grabs, like do do like you you, you oh okay, you know, like not that you're willing to do it. It's just yeah. it's looked upon as like that's just what you have to do. You develop they they used to say develop a thick skin, right? And you're seeing generations now who are not taking that and I, and I give mm -hmm. them so much respect, but I think the thing that was like really upsetting in the documentary was learning why Drew Dixon left the music industry. Mm -hmm. She was one of the most promising A&Rs. And like, the thing is, there's not a lot of women in A&R. No, not at all. Not a lot of black women in, in no. A&R especially. And, and so just, so just so we're clear and telling people what A&R is, A&R is artists, artists in development. And so basically it's, it's the Barry Gordy job where you take somebody and you, give them the good outfit and you tell them how to talk on camera and you just groom them and you make them the star that you signed them up to be. And it's really hard for a woman to do that because you have to deal with a lot of men who come with egos who mm -hmm. have nothing, who have, they just got signed off a demo and they don't entrust the woman to, to lead their career because of misogyny. Absolutely. And it's also a difficult job as a woman because you're the one that has to be three o'clock in the studio finding the next best talent, sitting mm -hmm. in on these sessions, watching them record their first album, working with the studio people, you know, saying like, hey, can we run that back? I think this, this, and this. And it is hard as a woman. It's hard as a woman to even maintain a relationship if you're working in that kind of a position. How do you explain to a man or a woman, whoever you're with, at, at three o'clock in the morning, I got to come home after I've been hanging out, you know, yeah. in a studio. Um, but I think the thing was, for so many of us who understood who she was in hip hop, Drew, mm -hmm. Um, we always wonder what happened. Yeah. And for her to come forward and, and explain why, and then to be told, you know, that, um, not only was the argument invalid or, you know, you're too late. That was the other thing. You shouldn't be bringing something up from 30 years ago. What, 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 what does that even mean? It, it does. See, this is the thing. I, I really wish that people would stop acting as if there's a timetable on her 
There's no timetable on her, especially if you if you go to therapy and you and you discuss childhood traumas that live with you forever. Mm -hmm. If you touch me inappropriately, if you threaten my livelihood, if you put me in a position where I feel like I'm backed in a corner, I'm going to feel that forever. And I think that is the the downside to hip hop because it is this machismo mentality and people suppress so many things that when you try to tap into any level of vulnerability, they call you gay. Like they say, oh, that's gay. Like that, like mm -hmm. that is the response. Like when you share something that makes you vulnerable, like, oh, stop being gay, which is in and of itself so problematic. And it's a defense, it's a, it's a defense mechanism that is tolerated. And it's definitely going to implode. I believe it's going to implode the hip hop community because enough is enough. And we can't fight, you know, this whole show is about intersectionality. We can't fight for black men to be treated fairly and black women to be treated fairly if we don't address the misogyny that happens in our own communities. Well, and, and I'm also curious about hip hop's Me Too moment. Mm -hmm. we, we haven't really had that. And I think to your point, you know, um, hip hop has to do a better job of protecting black women. And I say this as a white woman in hip hop. I've, I've witnessed far too many times over the last two decades, situations where black women have been minimized in, in the highest positions, but still made to feel like they're less. I'm, I'm in these rooms and I'm seeing it happen. Mm -hmm. And to know that when you add on top of that sex crimes and just abuse, multiple abusive patterns, different forms of abuse, whether verbal, physical, or otherwise, the fact that Black women who helped build, Drew Dixon helped build hip hop in the 90s. Like she's like one of the reasons why we we had like Wu-Tang Clan, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, the absolutely. fact that she sang, she sang the reference track to, um, you know, You're All I Need to Get By. Like, or the album track before Mary jumped on the remix. Yeah. Um, but this is someone who when you needed something, she delivered like black women always do. Absolutely. So if you, if hip hop as a whole, but that includes every person, every from every walk of life who can, who not only um, profits off it, but loves it, is passionate about it, all of it. Mm -hmm. Then we have to protect the women who built it. Yeah, I, I agree. A thousand, I agree a thousand percent. And 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 before I let you go, I just how how do we even go about trying to fix this? This is such a huge. It's it's like the tip of a glacier, you know, mm -hmm. and and it's it's been the same size, and it hasn't it hasn't broken through. So how can we start to fix this problem in hip hop? Well, I, I have two things. I don't know if they're correct, right? Um, to women, just because a man hasn't raped you doesn't mean he's not a rapist. Mm. Um, and to the men, stop defending these guys. You know, unless there's something that you have deep down, you have a skeleton mm. in your closet. You know, who are you defending? Like, yeah. why are you defending? Because guess what? You know, a woman gave birth to you. Who are you defending? Like, what, what are you protecting? This is a multi-billion dollar industry. Is it your money? You'll find money elsewhere. N and not to mention that <laughs> in, at the end of the day, a lot of these male artists are not protected themselves. No, no. And so it, it's off, a, yeah. At the drop of a dime, at the drop of, drop of a dime, they're dropped. They're so disposable, but the ego won't allow them to believe that they too are disposable. So absolutely, this is something that I'm going to continue to watch and hopefully it can start to fix the problem that's been around since the inception of hip hop culture. Um, Kathy, thank you again for joining us. Please Thanks buy her book. Me. 
God Save the Queens. Check it out. It's a great, amazing book. And she has another book coming out soon. So look for her and follow all her stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. Cat 3000 on IG. Cat 3000 on IG. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you, Well, that was a lot. And I know many of you may have seen uh, the Russell Simmons trending and didn't really know what all it meant. But please do your due diligence. Please uh, watch the documentary. I'm going to watch it this weekend. Watch it. Have the conversations that we need to have because we need to hold people accountable across the board. We cannot talk about uh, Weinstein or Epstein and not look at the people in our own community. So again, let's have that conversation. Speaking of conversation, I'm so excited for tonight's big talk. That's right. We are discussing the ABCs of intersectionality. And I know a lot of us have been hearing intersectionality recently. And you're like, what exactly does that mean? Well, I am not the person to answer that question. But my next guest is. Uh, we're welcoming to the show, Ms. Kamara Sika. She is the vice president of programming at the Y. I mean, at the women's, the, I'm messing this up, YW Boston. Whenever I see YW, I always want to sing YMCA, like the, from the village people, but YW Boston. And their mission is to eliminate racism, empower women, and promote peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. Kamara has over 20 years of experience developing curricula and programs for nonprofits and schools and has a master's of library and information science. She shares a passion for learning, teaching, and advocacy. Please welcome Kamara Sika. Hi. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thank you for joining us this evening. No problem. I'm happy to be here. Yes. Yeah, so Kamara, I am, I'm coming to you for your expertise. Um, I think I know what intersectionality means. And let me tell you, before I got on tonight, one of my dear friends was like, oh, what's tonight's episode? Intersectionality. I'm a watch because I need to learn something. So the floor is yours. Can you just give us a brief overview um, of what intersectionality means. Sure. So before I even get into intersectionality, I think it's important to I um, talk about what identity means. Um, and so identity is uh, what you believe you are, but also how you are perceived. So really thinking about both how you move through the world, both internally and externally. And so when we're talking about uh, intersectionality, what we're talking about is that you have a variety of identities, particularly identities that people may perceive you as, that then interact with not one another, that uh, gets to either accumulated advantages. So when we're talking about white men, that is an intersectional identity. Mm -hmm. um, and when we're talking about Black women, there's intersectional disadvantages that are there. So really recognizing that it is a, uh, uh, amplification of both advantages or disadvantages that occurs. Uh, this term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in the late 80s and it became more popular in recent years as folks were using that to think about it in a more expansive way. So Kimberly Crenshaw was talking about it for Black women in particular. And in recent years, it has included uh, queer folks as well as uh, disability, class, and a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. And so as you're saying this, it reminds me of uh, when I used to refer to myself, especially when I got into the professional world, as a double minority. 
And so I think that is it. That is kind of the early understandings of intersectionality, but it was always internalized as kind of a negative, meaning I have two things against me as a black woman. And so now we want to change the conversation and say it doesn't need to be a negative if we are going to have the conversation about total inclusivity. Um, so one of the things that we do at YW is really think about empowerment as well. So our mission is eliminating room, uh, racism and empowering women. Um, and so when we're thinking about intersectionality, we also really want to think about what power is. And for us, power is both influence and authority. So I wouldn't say that we have to think about it in a way that is completely disempowering. Yes, there are things that work against us. I am a Black woman. I know that there are disadvantages that I have because of the body that I'm in, but I also wield a tremendous amount of power and influence. And how do I tap into that and get a deeper understanding of leveraging that to create the change I want to see in the world to get things to be more inclusive? Absolutely. And so just tell us a little bit about YW Boston. It's, if correct me if I'm wrong, it was the first YWCA in America. It is. Uh, so we are the first YWCA in the United States. Uh, we've been around for 154 years. Um, it started like every other YWCA. It was in response to YMCAs not allowing women to be there. And it was all always about educating women um, and getting uh, woman the access to lots of resources. I would say in recent years for us at YW Boston, we have shifted to really look at systemic change mm -hmm. and doing the work to create inclusive environments um, instead of just the direct work. So we don't do a lot of the work that typical YWCAs do where they have childcare and other items like that. We actually work with organizations to create equitable and inclusive organizations where women, particularly women of color, can succeed. And so how has COVID and now the our civil uprising, how has that impacted your work, if any? So COVID really shifted things for us. All of our work was in person. Um, and so we have pivoted everything to be virtual. Um, I would say one of the things that I really talked a lot about early on is that COVID-19 was going to really have an impact on Black women, um, not just thinking about who is dying from COVID-19. We know that Black people are disproportionately dying from that um, illness, but just thinking about what kinds of jobs Black women typically have because they have not had access to certain kinds of industries in the same way, or thinking about specifically all the childcare that women of color across the board, not just Black women, mm -hmm. will be disproportionately um, impacted by this um, illness and pandemic that is happening at this time. And now with recent unrest, we can see that there were significant amount of deaths um, that have happened, and I shouldn't say deaths, murders that have occurred, um, particularly Absolutely. in recent times. And one of the murders that we do want to talk about is Breonna Taylor. And that yes. murder um, for quite some time was not really paid attention to and noticed. And we see that that is also happening with trans um murders as well. And so just acknowledging and recognizing that it's not just Black men that are dying from police brutality and violence. Um, and we do want to raise that 
as one of the bigger challenges that's occurring at the moment as well. And what would you say is the biggest obstacle when you have the conversation about intersectionality? Um, and, and who is the most resistant to hearing that conversation? I think what makes having the conversation about intersectionality a challenge is particularly people who may hold one marginalized identity and not recognize the power that they may have with another identity. So for instance, white woman will look at me and say, well, I have the same issues, not recognizing that there's a compound interest <laughs> that occurs yes. with having brown skin. Um, and so that's a piece of it, uh, just recognizing that we all need to recognize the bodies that we're in really does have an impact on the way that we move through the world. And there may be similarities, but there are also grave differences. And so I also can acknowledge that white men listen to me in a very different way than they do for white women. So I do have some mm. power in a different way, wow. particularly in the business and office space, yeah. um, because the expectation from white men is that white women need to be protected and don't really know anything. And I come in and I'm closer to being an equal, right? They see me as someone that is supposed to be powerful, that is supposed to be able to carry all the burdens, right? That is, all, you know, unfortunate, um, circumstance and stereotype of black women that really does have a negative impact on our lives because we do internalize that and take that and really try to run with it and hold the whole world up. Mm -hmm. um, but what that does mean is in certain spaces, we also have a voice that other people may not be able to have. And so once we know, acknowledge and recognize that we can step into that power and use it. Yeah. Absolutely. And speaking about stepping into that power, how can we as individuals, what can we do to start changing the language when it comes to intersectionality? So I would just say that we really need to focus in on what it means for you as in your own identity. A part of what we all are doing is internalizing what that identity is. One example of that is when I used to work with middle school youth, girls, I would ask them, what does it mean to be a girl? And they would give me one list of things. And then when I'd say, what does it mean to be a blank girl? And they could fill it in with what race or ethnicity they wanted to. Black and Latinx girls across the board always had very negative things that they mm. thought they had to be because of what the stereotypes and imagery is that they have there. And so one of the things is watching your show, seeing different things where people are taking action and taking their own power and being who they really wanna be and really dig in and get an understanding of who you are and live in that. And that's what's gonna be the most successful, not trying to achieve what someone else has deemed a success for you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kamara. Um, where can people learn more about your organization, YW Boston? YWBoston.org. We are also on Twitter, YW Boston, um, Instagram, and Facebook, LinkedIn. If you're looking for us to do some work with your organizations, we do all of our work virtually as well. So we do come in and help organizations to be more equitable, particularly focusing in on thinking about issues of women of color. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, I'm so glad that we were able to kind of shed light. I see a lot of people in the comments being like, oh, this is uh, Mary Pryor's. Like, oh, this 
informative. And and I'm so glad that you were able to join us this evening. Thank you again. Uh, hopefully you can come back and we can continue this conversation. Yes, definitely. Thank you. <laughs> so there you have it, folks. The understanding of intersectionality. It's just the start. It's just the start. It's like... um. It's like learning how to ride a bicycle, right? At first, you're going to be a little shaky and unsure of yourself. But the more you step into that, step into that power, as Kamara said, the more that you can use your voice and help other people and also understand where you really need to be. Um, continuing the conversation about intersectionality is uh, my pleasure to bring my next guest. She is a comedian like me. Uh, she's also an actress, uh, actor. Uh, a writer, and she was also seen on Jimmy Kimmel Live and MTV's Decoded. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Miss Danielle Perez. How are you? Hi, Chloe. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being available. <laughs> um, um, like Crying, I was, home, home hiding. I know people, well, you know, they opened up the phases, so people are like, I want to go outside again. And of course, I have asthma. I'm high risk. <laughs> I'm not leaving. <laughs> Listen, I'm glad that you are aware of where you need to be. And that's in the house. Um, so yeah. that you can be on the show tonight. Um, I wanted you to come on because uh, you definitely have experience with intersectionality. You're Afro-Latina. You're also disabled. And so you bring all of that into your comedy onto the stage. And I met you in Los Angeles. Hmm. And, um, and I want to say this about Los Angeles that um, from what I, what I saw, it could be, you can let me know, people really were affirming and um, helpful with you. Like people really like, oh, Danielle's <laughs> going to be here. Make sure that this is here so she can have act. It's not like. Yeah, I appreciate that. Like, not everywhere. Not everywhere not, in Los Angeles. But. Well, <laughs> yes, I, I definitely saw you at a show. And when they were like, Danielle's coming, we got to make sure she can get to the stage and we help her on the stage. And she's like, so I was really because in New York City, we don't really have that many wheel wheelchair accessible clubs. A lot of our clubs in New York City are in basements. Yeah, yeah. Uh, doing shows in New York is really wild. Whenever I go, I have to like budget in time for Ubers and Lyfts to cancel on me once they see that I use a wheelchair. So that's it's really cool when you have like more than one in a night. <laughs> that's a shame. And we need to change that, which is why we're having the conversation about intersectionality. So, Danielle, as a comedian, did you have any reservations, one, about starting stand-up comedy? I know it's like an oxymoron to say that, but um, about stand starting stand-up comedy, would you have any reservations or what what kind of propelled you to use your, your unique experience in stand-up? I didn't have any reservations. I lost my feet when I was 20 and I started comedy when I was 30. So I had already been living most of my adult life with a disabil disability. So I just was like, okay, you know, I have to figure out how to go to the grocery store, how to go out to dinner, how to, you know, get this, that, and the other already. So now I just got to figure out how to go to open mics and get on stages. Yeah. And what would you say was your the biggest obstacle when it came time to you really committing to stand up? I think the biggest obstacle for me was the fact that um, I was not entering such straight white male spaces. Mm, yes. I had not experienced that. I'm born and raised Los Angeles on the east side. I'm Afro-Latina. Most of my friends are people of color, they're, you know, Latinx, they're queer, they're women, you know? And so um, straight white men was not my hang. I don't, I did not know a lot of them before I started comedy. And so now being in spaces where I was one of a few women 
most often than not the only women of color, most certainly the only physically disabled person, that was really shocking because even though, you know, obviously um, the like black experience is very different than the white experience in America mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm very middle-class, both my parents like owned homes growing up. I went to private school. There, there were things that like my class afforded me where I didn't really have to experience certain things. And now that I was in stand-up comedy and being around all of these idiots, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I just, it was just really shocking. Yes. It was like, okay, I have to figure out how to make them laugh and also make me laugh. Yeah. You know, the compromise, like where, how do I stay true to myself while also understanding that these are people that book shows. Yeah. These are people that everyone likes already. <laughs> yeah. And I think the other thing about, you know, when you are a woman of color in, in comedy, one, you have to deal with people, your, your peers, uh, accepting you and thinking and, and considering you as a peer to begin with. That's yeah. number one. And also number two is getting the audience to see you as relatable. I think that's something that we kind of underestimate because you just hope that you'll be funny and people will like you. But when we step on stage or when we, when we, when the light hits us, they're already judging us. Right. Yeah. And totally. so what do you, what tools do you use in your, in your material to kind of, set them at ease so that they can enjoy the show when you appear? When I first started, I definitely felt the need to address my disability in a way that I don't feel like I have to anymore. But it was, you know, definitely a very small, quick joke right up top to let them know that I see what they see, right? That we're taking the, you know, we're seeing the elephant in the room, (laughs) letting the air out so that no one... (laughs) faints because they're like, does she know? It's like, I look in the mirror every day. I, I know (laughs) I like, I was there when those three people lifted me onto stage. I, I know. Um, but now I, I definitely am more comfortable with just my skill and my talent and what I have to say that, honey, we're going to talk about whatever the fuck I want to talk about. And we may not get to the wheelchair, we don't need to get to the wheelchair because everything else I have to say, I'm not just a disabled comedian. I'm a comedian. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's why it's so important to have this conversation about intersectionality because people want to label us for the thing that's the most obvious to them. Mm-hmm. So whether it's, you know, my race or your disability, it's like, that's the thing I see. That's the thing I expect them to live up to. And when it comes to stand up or entertainment or even writing, it's like, no, I already know that this is a part of who I am. I need you to see what I bring to the table. And so I just wanted to ask you as a disabled person, how do you feel about all of the stuff that's happening, all the conversations that's happening? Because I'm going to be honest, I, when I hear about how we need to burn this country down and rebuild it and make everybody equals, I don't hear a lot of inclusion when it comes to the, the disabled community. Are you yeah. noticing that as well? Yeah, no, that's, it's something that people will talk about, you know, we need to end racism and sexism and homophobia, but, you know, we never really seem to get to ableism. And uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard because disabled people are 20% of the population. Mm -hmm. It's a minority group that 
truly anyone can be part of. You know, I was and, and this, that numbers and that number right there, twenty percent of of Americans are are disabled. That's more than the African American population in the It's the country. largest minority community like in and, the and world. It, <laughs> and no one ever says that. Like you're saying that to me now. It's never it's said it's always like white people are 70 something percent or whatever the percentage it is. And then African American is like 13-ish and then Hispanic Americans are Latin. I never we never hear disabled Americans when we break down the population of this country. And so much of that is by design because our cities are built, so they aren't accessible spaces. Where ramps, where are the elevators, where are the ASL interpreters, where is the accessibility? Because if spaces aren't accessible, then disabled people cannot participate in society. And so if you don't see disabled people in your world, you don't notice when it's not represented in media. You don't notice when it's not on TV. You don't notice when it's not in your movies. And you don't notice when they get it wrong. Yeah, and absolutely. So for like me being on stage, being physically visible, it's stand-up comedy, obviously, like I love performing, I love telling jokes, I love making people laugh, but I love the power that it gives me as yeah. a woman, as a disabled woman, as an Afro-Latina, to be in a room and all eyes are on me and people are listening and I'm in charge. It's huge. You just don't, yeah. you don't get that. Every you don't. You don't. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. Where can people follow you and support oh, your career? Yeah, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Diva Deluxe. Uh, right now, it's a lot of, you know, I mean, and I hope to keep it that way. Just, yeah. you know, defunding the police. Uh, it's uh, an ACAB summer. Okay. There you go. There you go. You heard it here. Thank you so much. All the way from Los Angeles. Thank you so much for joining us, Danielle. Have a great night. All right, so we uh, we uh, we addressed uh, Russell Simmons, trash antics, uh, misogyny, and hip hop. We got a breakdown of intersectionality. We've heard from uh, a disabled comedian who wants us to include them. Twenty percent. You heard that twenty percent of Americans are disabled. Who knew? Who knew? We don't hear those numbers. And so it is my joy to bring our last guest of the evening. Um, this gentleman and I. Um, we're friends on social media, but I'm so ha happy to have him here. He is the groundbreaking, the iconic Andre Dre. He is a, a model, a performance artist, and the first, sorry, and the first male, even though Andre, my apologies, identifies as non-gender binary, the first African-American male to be on the cover of the Parisian Vogue. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Andre J. Hello, everyone. Hi, Hello. darling. Hello. See, wait, Thank you for having me, Chloe. What up? Hold on. I gotta, I gotta adjust my lip gloss for you. I gotta Pop touch it, it up. Make I gotta it touch it up. Make it pop, boo. Make <laughs> it pop. Um, thank you so much for for joining us this evening. Um, I I follow you on Instagram. I feel like we're friends. And you are a ray of sunshine. And <laughs> I wanted you to come on because you embody a lot of the things that we discussed this evening when it comes to identity, when it comes to stepping into your voice and your power. Um, and you've been you've been this way. And I don't want to say as if you weren't, but you've been living this way out loud proudly since I've come across you. And so I wanted you to give your experience and your kind of uh, advice on how more people can be understanding and open the way you are? It's really about living unapologetically. You know, self-love is a healer. 
Self-love allows you to love others effortlessly. So because I hold this, this joy, this self-love, this appreciation, this motherfucking style, this pizzazz, this grace, this poise, I got to share that shit. <laughs> I got to share it. Why am I holding all of this positive energy, all of this love? Why am I holding this shit? I'm happy. I know what it feels like to be sad. I know what it feels like to be hurt. I know what it feels like to be just fucking hated for no reason. It's an uncomfortable, dirty, nasty feeling. I don't want anyone to feel that way unnecessarily. So I choose joy. You know, we all make a conscious choice every single day that we wake up. And I choose to be happy. I choose to see the world through the eyes of love. But I also believe in healthy motherfucking boundaries also. So don't get it confused. As yes. nice as I am, I'm a little ghetto too, you know. Yes, Newark, Newark, New Jersey. Let Dirty them know. Jers. Dirty <laughs> Jers all the way. And, you know, that helped me also, you know, that growing up in the hood really allowed me to own it. Mm. And when I say own it, I don't mean no sissy, rolling your neck, those kind of things, because those words were used to hurt me. Yes. And now that I realize those words were actually the power and the strength that I needed to find the love within myself, that's the key. That is the key. That That's is that is the key. It is because a lot of times when you are challenged, you have two decisions to make. Either you're going to believe the things that people say about you or you're going to build up your self-esteem and your confidence to 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 shoot it down. And and I come from an experience as well. I was bullied tremendously as a child. So I know what it's like to have to figure out who you are when everybody else is telling you who they think you are. But you know what I find also, and I'm going to say this because we're living in a very modern time. Loving yourself is the best revolution. Mm. Do you get what I'm saying? It's the best fucking strength. It's the best way to yeah. take yes. the power back. It's the... It is. And that's what we're seeing. Way. That's what we're it's seeing. It's the we're best way. Take yeah. the fucking power back. All of those people that didn't believe in you, it is not their responsibility to believe in you. Mm. It's your responsibility to believe in yourself. They don't have to love you because nine times out of ten, they don't love themselves because it's hard to, when you're really exuding love, it's kind of hard to love, not to love someone and especially someone that you don't even fucking know. How can you, yeah. who has time for that? So when you hold that negative energy, it's like you keep that over there. It has no effect on me. It's yours. It's not mine. And I'm yeah. not going to allow you to give it to me because I don't want it. No, return to sender. And so when you talk about your, your <laughs> upbringing and, and being bullied and being tormented, who did you look to? Like who helped uplift you? What community took you in? Was it family members? Was it the LGBTQI? Was it the fashion community? So let me just give you a little, like I, I, I kind of messed up his, I keep saying him and I apologize. This is me it's okay. unlearning. I was going to check you, um, but grab no, gratefully because I love okay. you. I was going to come to you. Andre J, whose pronouns are they or them? Andre, what community embraced you and helped uplift you and, and show you that there was another option? the bathroom mirror there was no community like in my era you know there was like the ymca no you know the youth there was no really openly gay resources like there is hmi now you know mm -hmm. when and during my era that didn't exist i was molested repeatedly by my older male cousin also so mm -hmm. i was called a fag and a sissy and then i was being molested by my older male cousin and 
one day I was in the bathroom and I looked at myself in the bathroom mirror and I said, Andre, I love you. And I kid you not, through me saying those words to myself in the mirror, a shift occurred. Mm. I swear to you, a true shift occurred. And that's when I realized understanding the importance of self-love because I didn't have resources. I didn't have I didn't go to my family. I didn't come out to my family. I didn't fucking need to come out to them. I am who I am. What, what, yeah. am, what am I looking for them to say? We love you. No, fuck that. I love myself. And this is not arrogance. This is 100% being unapologetically you. You know, it's like you can't seek all of this exterior validation. You can't mm-hmm. seek all of these things. You know, a lot of it you have to give to yourself. Oh, yeah. shit. <laughs> there you go. That, that was some powerful shit. That, that was it. Be- that was it. Like, woo, there you go. Snatching right, you right, up. Right. Um, like, and so and so when it comes to your identity, what was the conversation that you had with yourself about how you wanted to be seen in the world? And also, I I I definitely want to apologize for misgendering you and it was just okay. a flip up. But I also want to want to say that I should know better because I've been following your career for a long time and and you were one of the earliest people that I come across who started to use the they and them pronouns. So what conversation did you have with yourself to say, this feels right. And this is how I need to be received by the world. I, I, for me, there were, there was Diana Ross, there was Cher and there was Tina Turner. They had a spark and they had magic and they're through their spark and their magic. I knew that there was something that lived in me. I didn't know what that was in that particular moment, but they had a shine. They had a grease. They had poise. They were just magical. And for me, the journey was finding that within myself. And once I understood who Andre J is, then I became my own entity of what I found in Cher or what I found in Diana Ross. And that came through exploring. That came through dressing the way that I saw myself. That came through walking in my own grace. That came through talking with my own swag and my own slang. That came with people calling me a fag. It came with people calling me a sissy. It came with all of those character building components that brought me to the elevation of where I am today. Whereas I can walk up to a stranger and whether they like me or not, I still am good with myself at the end of the day. Mm, and that is where that's where the real power is because we live in a world where gossip has ruined everything and people are very concerned with what others think about them and then that becomes their downfall because they are afraid to show up for themselves because of the criticism that goes along with it i'm like the criticism you're going to get if you're a good person the criticism you're going to get if you're a bad person you're going to get it so you might as well enjoy being who you are to get it I'm like, fuck this. If I'm going to show up today, let me put my dream catches on. If I'm going to do Chloe today, is it still pandemic going on? Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'm going to show up. Yeah. That's the shit that I'm talking about. I'm going to show up for myself. And that's me taking responsibility for myself. Symbolism, dream catches. Any of you motherfuckers out there want to holler at me? I'm available. You know it's a recession. (laughs) (laughs) Dreams. And so let me ask you, before I let you go, let me ask you, with all of the stuff that's happening from COVID to the pandemic to police brutality, um, and also to this conversation we're having tonight about intersectionality, what was a moment recently where you felt 
we're actually moving in the right direction? Was it personal or something that you saw in the news where you just felt like you said that energy shift? I listened to the age of Aquarius the other day um, by the fifth dimension and it just really hit me like this chaos is really bringing us to the glory. Like, you know, this death that we are experiencing, unfortunately, it is liberating us and it is bringing us to a new dimension. We are ascending and there are many low vibrational beings that exist. I'm not, I don't, not disregarding anyone's family because I just lost two family members to COVID also, but there is a real energetic shift that is approaching mm -hmm. and we need to get into it and we need to get into our self-love we need to get into our journaling we need to get into burning our palo santo we need to really get into tapping into our higher selves because yeah. that's where the real glory is yes and you are glorious Woo! <laughs> andre j ladies and gentlemen where can people follow you and support you Follow me on Andre J Worldwide on Instagram, you know, Cash App, Urban Mystic, because you know we're in a motherfucking session. So, so I, I just want to say someone said Andre has not aged in 20 years. <laughs> that's that magic, boo. That's that magic, boo. That's that magic, boo. And, and someone else said, I'm feeling this energy right now. I'm feeling it, too. I'm feeling well, it, I too. Pa I had Palo Santo burning, but it, it went out. So there you go. That's probably intention. why I kept fucking up your pronouns. Intention. <laughs> what i didn't even get offended i didn't scream okay. at you i didn't it's all good yes thank you uh with I all my heart, heart is. yes yeah, with is. all my heart thank you so much for uh joining us this evening thank andre j thank, thank you. you yes bye but there you have it ladies and gentlemen it's been another episode uh this evening we were talking about intersectionality and um and let me put up my little cash out real quick Real quick, real quick, because this is a, a one woman in Tim organization. Um, if you enjoyed this tonight's show, I know there's a lot going on and and I, my, my Christian evangelicalism is coming back. I know there's a lot going on in the world, but if you could sow a seed, sow a seed in a black woman starting her own late night talk show, where else can you go and get conversations like this? I know our numbers are small, but we are going to grow and we are going to build. If you sow a seed, Send some money to my Venmo and Cash App. I greatly appreciate it because I do want to make the show better. And I already feel like it's gotten better from episode one to episode three. Um, and, and we're going to have so many more great conversations um, over the weeks to come. I don't know. Over the weeks to come. Okay. That's my shameless, gratuitous plug. Okay. Now for something uh, more serious. Today, uh, the... Uh, Entertainment and media world was rocked by the untimely death of Jazz Waters. Jazz was an incredible journalist who eventually moved on to Hollywood. She was a screenwriter for shows like This Is Us, um, and her talent is going to be missed. I dedicate this show to the honor, the life, the joy of Miss Jazz Waters. Have a good night. <laughs>